0: Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the words of Christ. We heard in prayer this morning, our meeting before service, that we have one instructor ultimately, and that instructor is Christ. So please, Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, by the grace and the love that you have towards us, come and be our instructor now. As we go through your words, teach us, teach our hearts, help your word to get in our hearts. May we find life in you and have full confidence that you are who you say you are. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So in one of his hymns, uh, William Cowper writes of what he calls blind unbelief. Blind unbelief, he says, it is sure to err and scan God's work in vain. However, God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. Right? And therefore, the erring isn't owing to God being absent or indiscernible or silent. It's not that He's left Himself without a a solid witness. It's that sin has given rise to a dreadful darkness buoyed by all kinds of self-interested bias that's imprisoned the soul to a willful rebellion against the divine and self-evident truth that would otherwise save and set us free. Right In the immortal words of Jack Nicholson, apart from that rescue, we just can't handle the truth. Even when it's right in front of us and willing to be handled. You see, providence, which is Cowper's theme, is a rather mysterious thing. But the mystery of Christ, which is our text's theme, has been made incredibly plain to us. Incredibly plain. We know who He claims to be with nothing short of a divine testimony to it, God Himself has borne witness about Jesus. And to be sure, He's done it in such a way that no one exposed to it can honestly excuse themselves. In revealing Christ, God's covered all the bases for a very long time in His Word. And so, the natural hitch in our giddy-up lies entirely with the problem we call Unbelief. There simply is no will in us from birth to believe what God has plainly said. There is only a will, rather, to stand in judgment over against what God has plainly said because sin has turned the lights off and padlocked the switches and made us to love. The darkness, as John has already said in John chapter 3, if you remember that, friends, listen. Uh, It is hard, really hard, to give words to the spiritual night that is explicit in unbelief. To be beholden to blindness. To live so as not to see and love that. What a darkness and yet what I want us to hear this morning is that right into that darkness to raise us up from it God nonetheless testifies to the light and life of the world he makes Jesus plain Okay, so let's come to that by first coming to Jesus' testimony about himself in verses 30-31 to 31. you look there he's explaining his non-blasphemous equality with God He's giving a defense of His divine sonship and all of the Trinitarian implications that are going to follow from that. And so here He adds to what He's just said, if you remember from a week ago, and it's basically this, that His judgment, Christ's judgment, is the judgment of God. There it is. That while equal in being, He's yet entirely dependent upon the Father. He can do nothing on His own. But what that means is that all He does is not His own. Okay? It's an exact manifestation of the Father's will. Everything Jesus does. The Son shows the Father, and the Father is seen in the Son. And again, the display here is of divine judgment. And, and, and not just a divine judgment in the, the legal sense, a legal judgment, as in the prior verses, but also in the sense of what we might just call, you know, good judgment, right? Discerning wickedness, doing righteousness, knowing the, the true state of things in relationship to God's own mind and God's own glory. You see what he says there. As I hear, I judge. And as He judges, He weighs. And as He weighs, He weighs by the Father's will. And as He does that, He renders a verdict. But then, not just any verdict, right? His complete and utter bias in favor of God's redeeming glory atop the reality of their perfect, unbroken communication means Jesus' judgment is not just just, it's actually the divine rule of justice. Jesus incarnates what's right to God. That's incredible. He's that all seeing, soul searching, truth revealing judge. He is the true Son of God, not Adam, not Israel. Jesus, who in all His thoughts, words, and deeds, from the recesses of His heart to the edges of His existence, testifies to us of what we must be but aren't. And why. And so of our great need for Him. He's a mirror that in showing forth nothing but the radiance of the glory of God at the same time, necessarily exposes you and me in all of our sinful warts and ways. He's little Mr. Perfect. And that is why we hate Him so much. Until, until His saving love, even for us sinners, breaks us and brings us to love Him for His gracious love towards us. So the judgment of Jesus is the judgment of God. And yet we see in verse 31 something still more incredible. Jesus is willing to submit His claim to the judgment of sinful juries. And why is that so incredible? But because of who we already know Jesus to be. He's the Word of God. Remember? That's how John begins his gospel. He's the Word of God in flesh and blood. He is the Word that sustains the universe. He is the Word that governs and gives life and death to everything. He's the Word that would enjoy ready acceptance in our hearts were they now as they were at first in Eden. He is the living, the active, the sharp, the unbounded, the omnipotent, the all-sufficient, the divine Word. But here, that Word needs a witness. What? What? It is legally insufficient in that religious court of law. A law he wrote, by the way, for a court of unbelief. But it is cast nonetheless into that court. And it is incredible because Christ is willing to have it so. Jesus is willing to be nailed to their bench, so to speak, on the way to being nailed to his tree. And what's more, let the listener understand, a great part of his willingness to do this is that he, as he's soon to make plain, is not afraid to be judged by man on account of the truth of God's Word. If he's judged poorly... On account of that word, it is not He that is judged, but the jury. Jesus has nothing to hide, but my oh my, how much He does have to reveal. And so He calls His witness, besides Himself, to establish the truth. You see there verse 32? What does He say? He says, There is another who bears witness about Me, and I know His testimony about me is true. And so we come to the Father's multifaceted testimony to Jesus. I think the another there in verse 32 is the Father. Just to be clear on that. I think it's the Father. I don't think it's John the Baptist. I think it's the Father. In fact, Jesus clarifies this when in verse 34 He says the testimony to which He's referring is divine. You See what He says there? It's not of not of man is what he says. And then of course, John gives us his own commentary. Thank you, John. In 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 9 and following. We all need to hear it so we know the stakes at play in the rest of our text this morning. This is what he says there beginning in verse 9 of 1 John 5. He says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony, listen, <laughs> this is the testimony God has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has this divine testimony in themselves, something Jesus is going to say they don't have. But whoever does not believe God has made God a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God bore about His Son. So, here we go. Jesus calls the greatest witness in the universe here. And that witness has four proofs that He would give to Jesus and who He is. First up, verses 33-35, to 35, you get the testimony of John the Baptist. Jesus reminds them how Upon John's popularity, you may remember this, that they went out to him and how John was credible enough, think about this, he was credible enough in their minds to go to him and ask him what? Are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? And to the glory of Jesus, John, you recall, said, no, I am not the Christ. But John wasn't finished there, was he? Remember, uh, as it went on in John chapter 1, he goes on to say this. He gets Jesus in his sights. Remember? He sees him there and he says, Okay, I'm not the Christ, but there, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is the one who, though after me, ranks before me. Why? Because he was before me. (laughs) You know? There is the one, moreover, that. God Himself identified for me by the abiding descent of the Holy Spirit upon Him as the baptizer of the soul, the very Son of God, the divine Christ. You move to John chapter 3, you find John the Baptist furthering that testimony and saying, He is the bridegroom, He has the bride, and I'm just elated. (laughs) I'm elated about the whole thing just to be a part of that great wedding. That's John's testimony. In support of the truth, and while John was glad to play the background, if you ever listened to Lecrae, okay, play the background anyway. All right, whatever. Let that not diminish the credibility he ought to have. Here is a man, Jesus says, you listen to him, you will be led to the Savior. Jesus brings him up as he says in the text that these men, in considering John's testimony, what? May be saved. That's why I'm pointing you to John. He will lead you to me. Oh, that our Savior might have the same amount of confidence in you and me. Oh, listen. You want to hear the gospel? You want to be saved? You want to be at least directed to me? How about Jonathan? How about Hannah? How about Brian? Have you considered them? I am sure they will testify well about me to you. We'll see what else he says of John in verse 35 and take heart to ask if it's true of you. He says of John that he, John, was a burning and shining lamb. So you see there, he was a man of equal parts. Equal parts, light, and thus heat. Truth, and therefore, true affection. Beloved, if you want to burn for Christ, you must encase as much of His light as you possibly can. And the more light you have by His Word, the hotter you're then going to burn for His glory, we will not set the world aflame for Jesus by being biblical simpletons. It will not happen. No, the the greater the light, rightly felt, the warmer our witness will be. John was a burning and shining lamp. But in light of him, Jesus exposes really the first mark of their unbelief. He says they were willing to rejoice in John's Christ-directed light. Then what does he say? How does he close it? For a while. Mm. For a while. It is uh, a fickleness that sadly marks so many. Church, I want us to hear people will endure dim lights. And dull heat. And they'll even rejoice for a while in burning and shining lamps. Until those burning and shining lamps begin to bring near the exceeding radiance of the sun. That is, until they begin and will not stop expositing Christ over and over and over again, turning up His truth, raising the spiritual temperature in the assembly by the Word of God. Beware of being unable to enjoy Jesus. To be able to sit so long as all is rather dim and dull, only to begin to scurry as soon as a lot of the world begins to be repeatedly exalted, it is unwell people who typically will say, like you go into the room, they're in the dark, you turn on the light, what do they say? <laughs> turn out the light. What are you doing? It's too bright. Dim that lamp. I can't stand it. That's unwell people. Has such a soul ever really seen the saving light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? I hope so. Let me tell you this. You may be able to dim a lamp. It's likely John has been martyred at this point. But you will never, cannot ever, put out the Son of God. A lamp, the sun, no. The sun of righteousness, he has healing in his wings. You cannot put him out. So we better learn instead to bask in his rays. All of it. The witness of men will pass. Listen, you're hearing my voice right now. There is coming a day my voice will be done The testimony of Christ will go on. The testimony of Christ will go on forever. It will abide forever. It will advance upon every rebellion. It will break up deepest darkness. It is divine. And you see that's what Jesus continues to press picking up in verse 36. John's testimony is just the beginning. If you can't endure that light, just wait. Just wait. It only gets brighter from here. Next up in the Father's bag of proofs are the works of Jesus. He says, look there, that the works the Father has given me to accomplish the very works I am doing these, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus was on a mission from God. He says He'd received divine works to do that in the doing necessarily preached His divinity. And what have we seen? What have we seen in John? Just already, we're in John 5. There's like 21 chapters. Water into wine. The discerning of souls. The raising of the almost dead. The healing of the invalid. The saving of many sinners. What is He taught? That He, like His Father, is working. By working we mean, oh, I don't know, sustaining the cosmos. Caring for everything. Advancing the cross. He said that like His Father, He has life and power and authority to raise and judge the living and the dead. (laughs) The, The Father gave these to the Son to accomplish in this world Specifically, to be a testimony about who he is. My son had an essay to write last week, and he told us with great pride that in the end, his essay was the longest in the class. And anyone who has sat under my preaching, even in the least, will say that sounds about right. As I do, so Luke did. He's his father's son. That's just a weak and earthly example. Trying to explain something divine. How in an infinitely elevated, perfectly exact way, what Jesus did and will do, says something great about Him. That He is the co-equal Son of God. The Son of the Father. And I want us to hear. I want us to hear the reason, right? Right? that they're having this discussion at all, is because He really did these things, right? That's why they're talking about it. So my dear skeptical friends, there's no need for Jesus, no need at all for Jesus to be making this defense over something they knew He didn't do. So He had done them. And placed his whole identity upon them. And they had seen it with their own eyes. They talked to the invalid. Only to disbelieve it in their hearts. How is that possible? What will people believe then? It's a piercing question to keep in mind as we come to the third proof in the Father's testimony. And that is the Father's own immediate attestation. What do I mean? I mean, the Father Himself bore witness to Jesus. Not just by way of John. Not just by way of Jesus' works, but with His own voice. Right? His own smile. His own stamp of approval. And the most immediate example is back at John's testimony. Do you remember this? When Jesus was baptized... Who was it who identified Jesus as the Spirit-anointed Son of God, the divine Christ, for John? Who was it? It was the Father. It was the Father. And with that, I think we should also consider the way in which Jesus goes about working on the Sabbath without any apparent reprisal from God. No, quite to the contrary. He seems to own a license to operate freely within the Father's yes and amen. He was doing divine works on the divine day, divine works on the Sabbath, what should that tell us about Him? Are we not to conclude, as Nicodemus had, at least intellectually, that God was with Jesus and that God was for Jesus? What I'm saying is, it was clear to the honest eye and the reasonable mind that Jesus could not be doing the things He did without the Father's full support. And that also is a witness in the favor of Jesus as the divine Christ. And therefore, listen, if you then reject Jesus, you've only proven to be a rejecter of God. You've only proven that you don't know God at all. So you see here how at this point Jesus comes with another even more blatant charge against them. They are spiritually fickle because against their self-assumed identity they are actually foreign to the true family of God. Uh, Moses had heard God's voice. Jacob, Israel, had seen his form Many, throughout the Old Testament, had God's Spirit confirming the Word of God within them, but never these folks. Never these folks. Though they fancied themselves Moses' disciples, the true Israelites, lovers of the Word of God, they'd never known God without to within. For if they had, they would have recognized and believed the greater Moses... The really true Israel. The word of God made flesh. They have God speaking to them here. They have God present with them. Right here in Jesus. They are hearing and seeing. And also doubting. And disbelieving. And rejecting God. And all of that is saying. God is not their Father. God is not their Father. Kindly I would ask, is He yours this morning? Well, let's go further. There's a final proof in the Father's testimony here, and that is the Scriptures. And I'll tell you, verses 39 to 40 here are some of the most remarkable... And also terrifying words of Jesus. They really are. They're remarkable because in the flow of the text, Jesus presents the Scriptures of the Old Testament, mind you. What we call the Old Testament. As the conclusive mark of His divine defense. There is John. And there are the works. And there's the Father's own attestation. And then, how would you have closed his defense? There are the Scriptures. Dear ones, whatever we make of the Bible, Jesus understands it to be the very Word of God. And as such, He understands it to carry the all-sufficient weight of final Authority and say in this discussion. And what do they say? What do the scriptures say? You say many things, in fact, but, and this is what's the, the more remarkable Jesus himself here says they ultimately bear witness, verse 39, about me. Not me, but Jesus. Whether by prophecy or type or event or statute, as one put it, quote, what we call the Old Testament points to Christ. His ministry, his teaching, his death, his resurrection. He is the comprehensive interpretive key of Scripture. He is the one who unlocks God's Word. He is God's Word. If you read the Bible in any part and miss, Jesus, you've not read the Bible the way God intended you to read it, the way Christ Himself read it, or the way the Holy Spirit would incline you to read it. Uh, We decided this week in our elders' meeting to preach the Song of Solomon this summer. Right? You will not want to miss that. But, if we or I miss Jesus... Even in that book, we will have missed the entire point of it. And that holds across the canon of Scripture. It is all very remarkable what he says here about himself. But then I want us to see it is all heavily surrounded by terrifying reality. And why do I say that? Well, because, and I must have your ear here, you can apparently be all in the Scriptures and the Scriptures not be at all in you. They can be all around you, but not in you. As we see here, you can be the most extraordinary student of the Bible. You can be the most diligent of adventurers amongst his pages. You can have them running through your minds all the time. You can have them front and center in your life. You can set all your hope upon them. And yet be lost. Like these folks. These, listen, were not nominal attendants to God's word. They were not nominal. God help us. There wasn't any dust on the pages of their Bibles. And yet darkness filled their hearts. Think about that. Beloved, that is terrifying. It is terrifying that day and night you can search the scriptures which testify to Christ, and as proof of nature's dark night in your soul, you will yet refuse to come to Him. And the misstep here is so subtle. That's why it's so dangerous. Life is not, listen, life is not in the scriptures. In abstraction from Him to whom the Scriptures preach. Life, remember, is in Jesus. So, if you study the Scriptures, believing that your effort and your imagined obedience can win you eternal life apart from the grace of Christ, you have missed the entire point of what God has said in His Word. You've missed the whole testimony, which is that you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Not diseased, not comatose, dead. And you were condemned where you stand, but for the grace of God let out to us in Christ crucified and raised. Do not refuse him. Don't refuse him. Run to him for life. There he is. If the gospel is not the overriding theme of your every devotional, make it that tomorrow. And then every day following. Let us also hear as we move ahead, if you're not saved this hour, it is not because Jesus would not save you. Do you see that here in the text? He is willing. He already said verse 34, why am I saying all this stuff to you? Because I want you to be saved. That's why he's doing it. So it's not because Christ wouldn't save them. It's not because you lack the utmost witness in the universe. That is actually what we have here in this text. That's what this is. So what's the hold up? Why won't you just run to him? Why are you refusing him? J.C. Ryle puts it simply but profoundly. Quote, Unbelief does not arise so much from want of evidence as from want of will to believe. Life is in the sun. If I can break there, I was telling someone the other day, you put $10,000 in a bag and say, listen, it's all yours, go take it. It's free to you. Even the wealthiest person in the world is probably going to go over there and take it. They're going to run right to it. But eternal life is in the sun. (laughs) But men stand still to continue on with rile. They will not stir hand or foot to get it. And this is the whole reason why any of the lost are not saved. The plain truth is that the chief seed of unbelief is in the human heart. Many do not wish to believe and therefore remain unbelievers. They refuse him. The whole while he's saying, Come to me. So, I want us to see here that Jesus isn't satisfied with their refusal, meaning to pierce them to repentance. He goes deeper into the psychosis of unbelief, and in the process, he further reproves them for it. Picking up in verse 41. To me, it is one of the more helpful texts in the Bible. I know some of you are so passionate about sharing the gospel. You share the gospel every day, right? At the human level, let me ask us, why won't someone believe in Jesus? Again, if you're a faithful share of the gospel, I'm sure you've asked this question a time or 2,000 with tears. Why won't they believe in Jesus? I've been sharing the gospel with my dad for two decades now. Did again last night. Why won't he believe? Here's Jesus' answer. He says, I do not receive glory from people. As one convictingly put it, it is nothing to Jesus whether people praise him or not. And so we know where this is going. He knows something about these guys. These, he says, possess no true love for God in their hearts. Doubtless they say they do, but Jesus knows they don't. Because again, if they did, they'd be receiving him, but they're rejecting him. And so he then makes the the ever-relevant point that instead... Here's the reason. They prefer their own sort of Christ to the one that God has sent into the world. They are settlers for those who suit their own desires, persuasions, and expectations. So D.A. Carson aptly implies that for Jesus to be their sort of Christ, to win their praise, He would have to stoop and not just a little, but infinitely from the Christ He actually is. And to bring that to us as a body He would have us ask ourselves, are we more open to those who pant after great reputations? Are we more open to those who aim to scratch itching ears? Are we more open to those who would preach a Christ to please the people? Or are we more open to those who in the vein of Jesus believe that the only glory worth pursuing is the glory of God and the only Christ worth preaching is the Christ of God? The difference in our churches will be emphatic and eternal in consequence. And so Jesus lays down a principle of unbelief with which we all need to reckon. He says, not how will, that comes at the end of the passage, but how can you believe? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. So, friends, listen. The silver bullet to saving belief is valuing the praise of people more than the glory of God. That is Satan's choicest ammunition. And so long as that is the case, you will never believe. You can't, Jesus says, because you're captive. You're captive to what people will think of you for believing God, trusting his word, taking up a cross, looking like a fool, and following him. How can you be in the Scriptures and they not be in you? How can they call you to Christ alone, to Christ always, and you have no sense of it, no regard to Him, no will to love and trust Him? It's very, very simple at the end of the day. Ironic self-love. To the injury of your soul, you love you most of all. You want to look good in front of other lost people. (laughs) You don't want to look like a fool before them, so you will not be a fool for Christ. Friends, listen, again, at the center of saving faith is a light of a knowledge of a glory of God in the face of Christ that cannot be outshone by anything. That's the new birth. That's why you're a Christian. You saw that. The faith that comes from God knows this. There is one supreme treasure that is worth everything you've got in this life. And that is Jesus. If you find yourself struggling there, just be asking yourself, do I really? Desire first the praise of God. Because if you do, you won't stall any longer. To the saving of your souls, you will believe in Jesus right now. Again, there is no want of evidence or testimony, there is only want of will to believe that testimony. And so I pray God will grant you a will to believe it because the, the, the consequence of unbelief is again, eternally grave. You see how Jesus closes starting in verse 45. What a thing to have Moses accuse you. To have the Word of God stand against you at the last day. Can you imagine Everything I said to you, I said about Jesus. Everything I said to you, I said to get you to Jesus. But you did not believe Jesus. You never really believed me. But Moses, we got it right about the shellfish, right? Shellfish. Shellfish? Okay, whatever but you missed the cross of the Lord of glory. You missed the gospel. You rejected the grace of God for poor, wretched sinners like yourself. And there will be no defense to make. The script is going to be flipped as it has been right in our text. We think we're so cool judging the Word of God. You will not stand in judgment over the Word of God, but the Word of God that stood your whole life to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ will then in that day stand in judgment over you. Hear that. And if you haven't been yet, please, in hearing that, be turned from your sin to love and to trust this Jesus, this only Savior of sinners. Dear ones, God is His own interpreter. And He has made Jesus plain. And I want us to hear that on the the matter of our eternal salvation, the greatest matter there is, we then have the surest testimony. And with that, we have blessed assurance of eternal life. That eternal life, it's in the Son. Jesus is the Son. You're in Jesus by the grace of God. You therefore have eternal life. God has made it plain. I want you to hear it again. God has made it plain. And just so we should go out this morning with great joy and confidence in Jesus. He is who He says He is. May He be praised. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We do ask now that You would do Your working. It has been preached, but do that far greater thing. Press the truth of it into our hearts. Convert the lost. Please continue to grow, sanctify, develop, mature, and give joy and full assurance to those you've saved. And may Jesus have all the glory. We pray it in his name.